Good morning. <clears throat> if you have your Bible with you, please turn with me to the passage that Mark just read in Genesis chapter 26. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 26. Let's pray. Father, there's so many voices in this world calling for our attention, some very passionately seeking to sway us, Lord, through technology, person-to-person, co-workers, family, friends, so much of this world thinks they have answers. They don't. Father, your word has the answers. This precious, blood-bought, preserved gift in our hands this morning, Father, is who we look to. We look to you via your word for direction, for guidance, for truth. And I pray, Father, for PCBC, I pray for my own soul, we would cling tightly to the Word. That it would not simply be a book that we open Sunday morning, God, but a book that we are consistently in, recognizing that which is true about you, that which is true about us, and that which is true about this fallen world, Lord God, and how, just how to react and respond to it. And so I thank you, Father, for the ministry of preaching. I thank you that you would so unbelievably graciously let me do this. I love doing this. Father, I love this church body that loves the word. So, Father, please, boost our affection for the truth Boost our commitment to walk in obedience to that which we see as truth from your word. And help us, Lord, progressively as there's things inside of us, sinful desires that want to buck the system and fight against what we know to be true. And I pray, dear God, those chains would get broken over and over again. We have been set free to righteousness and the bondage of death and sin no longer has that hold. So bless this time, Father, in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the greatest struggles any of us will face, and probably, not probably, all of us will face at some point in our life as Christians, is to humbly submit to the will of God, to humbly submit to God's will. When I say God's will, I don't necessarily mean what we see revealed in the Word, although that is absolutely the truth, but I mean circumstances, things that come down the pike that you never would have picked for your own life, things that you never would have ever guessed this would be where I'm at. This is not how it was planned. One of the hardest things is to wait 
patiently in the midst of it. And to hold steady, saying, I I don't have a clue what's out there, but I know who's in charge of what's out there. And I I want him to hold me. I'm not speaking to any of you. I mean, I am. Okay, yeah. But, but <laughs> I'm speaking to my own, my own soul. I'm an impatient man. Even when I may even give the picture of patience, I'm sitting there going, I'm patiently waiting for this person to get out of my way. And to sit and wait and go, Lord, this is just killing me to sit and wait. In those moments, are God doing his finest work in you and in me? Waiting upon God when you don't know what's going on, you don't know the future, but you can trust the one who's in charge of the future is one of the hardest things we can do, and yet some of the sweetest. You can look through church history, beloved. If you, if you listen to some of the testimonies of, of um, men in, in church history, women in church history, the heat of the, of the waiting, the tension of waiting on God, is where he did some supreme work. John Owen, the Puritan, did his best to try to get John Bunyan released from prison. Worked hard to try to get him released from jail. He couldn't. He didn't. It didn't happen. And after 12 years of the imprisonment of John Bunyan, he came out with Pilgrim's Progress. God in his grace kept him, sustained him, and used him. Now here's this book that has been throughout the ages in the hands of Christians everywhere. Fun little fact. John Owen and um, John Bunyan, their graves are right beside each other. I can't, I just picture what that conversation is in heaven, (laughs) where Owen is like, I worked so hard, and he's like, I'm glad you failed, because God had to, you know, just amazing. But as Bunyan's children were at home thinking, when is dad ever going to be released? He was an instrument for God in in an extremely powerful, powerful way. So here's Isaac. Isaac has had an interesting go in chapter 26. One of the longest living patriarchs, and this is the only chapter that is specifically directed to Isaac. Isaac has been um, growing closer to the Lord. We saw him fall in the same temptation as his dad as he lied about his wife. We saw that didn't turned out okay in the end by God's grace. We see the Lord blessing him and his produce and what he's putting together during a famine. God is still very kind to him. Then we see him confronted, and we see him told, get out of Gerar, and so they push him out, and he leaves, and he starts seeking to dig up these old wells of his father's. And then last week, um, we ended at verse... 23, and I just want to read that. Look at verse 23 of chapter 26. From there, he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not. Why? For I am with you. Please notice, guys, he doesn't say everything's going to be peachy. 
No, he says, I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. And so he responds in worship. It says, so he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there and there Isaac's servants dug a well. Now, at that point in the story, the, the mind is typically, okay, so now he's out there, but God's going to bless him as he goes out there. And you would think this is the end of the story. Abimelech got him booted, and so everything's going to be just fine. The rest of this chapter is so fascinating to me because of what transpires here. But the title of this message is A Familiar Covenant. Let me show you why. Turn back to Genesis 21. Genesis chapter 21. And if you look at verse 22, some folks try to argue that the Abimelech in this text is the same as the Abimelech with Isaac. I'm I'm not sure. I doubt it. This is more of a, um, a title than a name. But regardless, at that time, Abimelech and Fickle, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, you know what would be fun? Every now and again, I read a name in front of you, and I'd like to hear every last one of you pronounce that name at some point today. <laughs> Mark said Fickel, Fickle, Pahickle. What is it? I don't know. But regardless, here we are. And I lost my place. Okay, Fickle, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham approved Abimelech, uh, reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had ceased, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart, and Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs will take from my, you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them Sworn oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. There Abimelech and Fickle, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Now you come back to chapter 26. Um, Part of the reason I struggle seeing that this is the same Abimelech is not only the massive amount of time between the two covenants, but there's no statement here at all in reference to the covenant with Abraham. That causes me to scratch my head just a little bit. So here is Abimelech coming to Isaac. At this point, it's kind of like, you know, you got rid of him. 
You were jealous of him. We saw this. They were envious of what God was doing through Isaac and through his, his herdsmen. And the flocks were growing. There was water. Things were going well for him. And so out of jealousy and envy and I think fear of him getting too big, they said, leave, depart from us, go away. Now, look at verse 26. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzeth, his advisor, and Fickle, the commander of his army. So you think about this. Here's the king, here's the king's advisor, and here's the commander of the army. All right? There's a, there's a massive treaty or the desire of a treaty to take place here. What two men should go with the king? Well, the king's in charge. Then we need the guy who's in charge of all the warriors, and we need the advisor who gives advice to the king because we're going to go discuss with him and pursue him and seek to make a treaty with this man. And so, gentlemen, let's go to him. So the king, the advisor of the army, or the advisor and the commander of the army. Isaac was already kicked out of town, quote-unquote. Isaac is totally surprised by this visit. If you look down at your Bible, it says, When Abimelech went to him, verse 27, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me? Seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you. Why would you pursue me? Question mark. You're jealous of, my, of the blessing of God in my life. You hate me, and you force me to leave the town. Isaac had put them out of his concern. So Isaac had set them apart. Okay, that's what you want. That's what I'm going to do. You want me out of town? That's fine. I'm going to go, and I know that the Lord will go with me. Remember, he just had this beautiful time of communion with the Lord. As he built an altar, he made a sacrifice. The Lord says, I'm with you. I'm going to continue with you. I'll be blessing you. Okay, then Abimelech on my side, not on my side, doesn't matter. The living God is with me, so I'll go forward. I will not let my adversary have his way in my life. I will trust the Lord and let him lead in the way he so desires. And then the adversary comes to him. There's, there's, a, there's a preaching point there that I don't want to spend a lot of time on. I'll touch on it later, but just, just notice that. His main concern was not the enemy, the adversary, the person who's angry with him, jealous of him, kicked him out. Rather, his focus is on God. Rather, his focus is, I want to worship the Lord. The Lord has brought this providentially into my life. I didn't want to go dig a bunch of wells. Things were going great where I was at. And God, in his grace, had me booted. I hope, beloved, I really hope you have that. You, your theology allows for that. That you would be very comfortable saying, the Lord makes me uncomfortable on purpose for his glory and my good. Because it, it's a very scary theology when somebody goes, God had nothing to do with this. That's not true. God has everything to do with this, which is why I believe this man just offered this sacrifice of worship before the living God. Now notice how the response is from the king. I love this. They said, remember his question, you hate me, you kicked me out. What are you doing here? Verse 28. They said, We see plainly that the Lord's been with you. 
I love that. I love that. Now, obviously, one of the main things that you would point to is the blessing of the water, the produce, so on and so forth. Remember, guys, this whole thing kicked off because they were getting envious of him. They were getting jealous of him. God's blessing is obviously on this man. And then he leaves. And I, again, here's the white space. I have no idea. I'm just curious what the conversation was among the king, the commander of the army, the advisor, as they're hearing things are still going on in Isaac's life. Why? What's happening? Seems like the Lord is still with him. He still has his servants. And now he's, now he's coming to the Lord in worship. Now he's opening up before the living God. And as you think about this, it's pretty plain, pretty simple in the text that they're scared. That's my best guess, is there's a fear here. The reason I say there's a fear is because the pursuit of Isaac is we want peace. We want peace. Look down at verse um, 28 again. It says, they said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm. (laughs) Us no harm? He's the one who's been kicked out. He's the one that has shown no fighting spirit. He's the one that has shown no harm towards them. And then they come to him. This is the king and the army and the advisor saying, we don't want you to hurt us. What that reveals to us is that God has so clearly, or as the ESV says, plainly made evident to them, God's with them. God's at work with them. Look at the blessing. Look at the servants. Look at, I, I just, I don't know how large of a group of servants and how big this compound is building around Isaac, but it's enough that the king took notice. But I'll add one more thing, and I don't know if it's true or not. It's my best guess, and after what he says here further makes me think that this is what's going on, is Abimelech is not necessarily scared of the circumstances, but he's scared because of the person who's behind the circumstances in Isaac's life. Because why wouldn't the king just say, kill him and do away with him? Just kill Isaac. Just take his life. There's far more going on here, I believe, in Abimelech and in his advisor and in this commander of the army. We plainly see God's with you. And Isaac, we don't necessarily aren't fearful of you. We already kicked you out. Who we're scared of is this God of yours. It's fascinating to ponder this. The king had a couple options. Wage war and seek to kill Isaac or seek peace. Isaac has shown no fighting spirit, and yet the kings fear him. That's that's huge. Isaac has shown no fighting spirit. This is a a, a consistent trend you see through Isaac's life. Um, As I was studying this, this was one commentator pointed this out, and I thought it was a great point. If you look through the life of Isaac, you see a fairly consistent submissive spirit in Isaac. Did you notice there's no fight with Abraham when Abraham's about to sacrifice him? And all through his life, there is this meekness, this submissiveness in Isaac. I don't think because he was a wimp 
I think there's something about his character. And as we see him mature and grow, it has more to do with God's protection, God's care, God's provision. Think about this, you guys. He's right there with his own father. And he says, Dad, where's the sacrifice? Where's the lamb? Dad says, the Lord will provide. He'll provide himself a sacrificial animal. I can't help but think of the impact on that young man and for the rest of his life to see his dad say, I'm going to walk in obedience, though it goes against everything in me, knowing that God is in sovereign control of this and he's behind it. There's some precious people in my life, personally, that I've seen just endure things I I can't go to mentally. It's too hard to imagine what they've gone through. And to see them come through the other side and say, oh, the Lord was so faithful in that. Oh, God God cared for us in that. He, He took good care of us. So if that impacts me in that way, if that boosts my faith in that way, then, beloved, how could it not affect Isaac his whole life? To see the faithfulness of his father, to know the God of his father, and now it's his turn to step up to the plate in his own faithfulness. And so to see a submissive, quiet, meek spirit in Isaac through most of his life is not that far-fetched. Really quick, if you would, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, if you would. Just a little New Testament concept that I want to point to in this point in the sermon. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's a point that is fairly easily made. I'm sure mentally you've already gone there in this sermon, but um, I'm, I'm, a really good, I'm really, really good at pointing out the obvious. So let me do that. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. The Apostle Paul says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay, Referring to himself, referring to human beings, referring to the church, referring to Christians. We have this treasure, the glory of the gospel, in jars of clay, clay pots. Clay pots at that time were used for, uh, they could be used for all kinds of stuff, hauling garbage, or they could be used, some people would put their, their money in there, or their jewels, or whatever, their valuables. It was like, I've heard somebody refer to it as um, New Testament Tupperware. And he says, we're clay pots. And you go, why? What what are you doing here, Paul? What, What are you driving at? We have this magnificent treasure in the clay pot on purpose. And here's the purpose. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. This is for the purpose of showing God's power in our weakness. So think about this. The commander of an army... The king and the the chief advisor of the king come up to little old Isaac and say, we see God's with you. Why? Because Isaac is Superman? No, because the blessing of God, the power of God is so abundantly evident in this man. Beloved, the world does not come to us because we have great talents. This is the lie. This is such a great lie throughout the history of the church that if we can get really talented, pretty, handsome, good-looking people and we put them in front, of the, in front of this world and we tell them to tell people they're Christians, then they'll want to be Christians. 
I come to my Bible. I will see it. What I see in the Bible is weakness is the way. God's power shines through weakness, not us bragging about our gifts and our talents. And so when we take somebody who's famous in the eyes of the world and set him in front of a pulpit and say, look, he's a Christian. Don't you want to be a Christian? Because this famous person's a Christian. We're taking the world's method and trying to get God's results. It's not going to work. The scripture with great clarity says God's power bursts through our weakness. Because you got to ask the question, why on earth is a king and a commander of an army scared of Isaac? They're not. They're scared of his God. They've recognized the power of God in the clay pot. Back to chapter 26. The good hand of God is on Isaac. And now we're going to see a peace covenant made, a covenant where oaths will be sworn for the purpose of peace. Look at verse 28. I want to read this whole thing together. They said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good, like when we kicked you out of town, (laughs) and have sent you away in peace. You are now, now remember, unbeliever's lips, the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. This was customary. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, And Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. This is proposed a proposed agreement by these three. This is a covenant of peace, mutual peace between these two parties. Isaac, you and your group and us and our group, we wish to make peace between us. Please notice this, you guys. It's just such an important part. Isaac was told to leave. Isaac left. He received God's providential set of circumstances. And then as he did that, with his eyes focused on the Lord in worship, in a sacrifice coming before the living God, he was content. He was settled. The Lord is my God. He's the one I'll rest in. As his eyes was on the Lord, the Lord was over here at work in the life of the commander of the army, the king and the chief advisor, and they pursue him. Do you see that waiting upon the Lord is difficult? But do you see it's also what we're supposed to do? It is truly where we are called to be. When there's a set of circumstances, and I'm not arguing for spiritual laziness, I'm not arguing for let go and let God, I don't see that in the Scripture. What I see in the Scripture is be hard at work, digging these wells, walking in obedience, but patiently waiting for the Lord to produce that which He'll produce. See, there's a, there's a balance here that's so needed where we consistently act, work, pursue, and patiently wait. Because when Isaac left, he didn't say, well, I'll be in the tent. <laughs> they kept digging and digging, trying to find water, pursuing the water, and pursuing to obey the best they know how. 
simultaneously, the Lord will provide. He didn't go to war. He didn't fight. He waited. But why he waited, and it's so important, why he waited, he worshipped. Why he waited, he worshipped. Guys, in a, in a group of this size, I know without a shadow of a doubt, there are people here who are waiting. I don't mean for this sermon, I know that. <laughs> There's stuff in your life, you're waiting. You don't have an answer, it's not clear. Maybe your trust in the Lord looks a little fuzzy this morning, potentially. Can I just remind you from the word of the living God, don't forget to worship while you wait. Don't forget that the sovereign of the universe has everything in in control. He is in control. He loves you with a love that you cannot fathom with your brain cells. So the one who's in complete control, sovereign over all things, loves you more than you can understand. Pretty sure he has you. I'm not saying, therefore, we don't wrestle with anxiety. I'm just saying, let us not forget to worship while we wait upon the Lord, as we saw what Isaac has done here. Please notice um, Romans chapter 12, 18. You don't have to turn there. I mean, you can if you want, but um, that passage that simply says, seek to live at peace with all men as much as it is up to you. There's a peace-seeking mentality in Isaac here. Because let's think, let's think about this, right? They give him the boot. He's kicked out of town. Now he's on the outskirts. He's digging, working hard, sweat of his brow, trying to discover where the water is. And then the king has the gall to come to him with the commander of the army and the chief advisor and say, we'd like to be in a peace covenant with you so you don't do us any harm. Do you see a window for bitterness there? I sure do. Right there, Isaac goes, not in your life. We're doing just fine, thank you very much. The living God's on my side. We'll see how this turns out for you. You know what he does? He starts cooking. (laughs) He makes a feast for them. Again, customary customary what they're, what they're doing here in reference to this bond of the covenant is they're going to feast together. So they have a large meal, they eat, they drink, and early that next morning they come together and they swear their oath to one another. Isaac is seeking to live at peace with all men as much as it is up to him. Spite doesn't come into the, into the uh, discussion here. That next morning, as they exchanged the O's, they said, let there be peace. Now, drop down verse 31. I'm going to read the actual text. It says, in the morning they rose early and exchanged O's, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, we have found water. He called it Sheba. Sounds like the same, um, where, do, where do I have this? The same word, um, oath. Sounds like the Hebrew word oath. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba this day, to this day. I cannot help but see the sweet providential hand of God woven through this whole storyline. 
things get difficult, he responds. And he responds wrongly. Don't, don't please, guys, I'm not trying to paint Isaac as like um, Captain Perfect here. Isaac really blew it at the beginning of this chapter. He told, he told the king that my wife is my sister, so that way you won't do me harm. You do her harm, but no, don't do me any harm. He failed, just like you and me. God in his grace will correct him, just like you, just like me. He grew from it, and the Lord blessed him, profoundly blessed him in the midst of a famine, Then he came up to an adversary who gave him the boot. He leaves, meets up with the Lord at a familiar location, has a sweet time of communion and fellowship and worship, decides to trust the Lord rather than trusting his own eyes in the circumstances he's looking at. And then God in his grace brings this king to him and they make a covenant of peace. And then right after that, they go, we struck water. God in his grace has allowed this to happen, and he has protected you, Isaac. So let me ask you, Isaac, are you growing in your trust? Have you seen the good hand of God in your life? Let's go back to where you were a young man, and your father was going to take you and sacrifice you before the living God, and the Lord stopped that to show his power, to show his might, to test your father. Let's look at all these years, Isaac as a wife was provided for you, as you fill in the blank, all these different things God has done with you. And so I want to show you just kind of three touchstones in the chapter and then draw to conclusion. Um, First look at verse 3 of chapter 26. 26, 3. The Lord says, Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. Now look at verse 24. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you. And then from the mouths of the world, verse 28, they said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. I will be with you. I am with you. He has been with you. You see, the, the, he's never been without him. Isaac has never been without him. The Lord is there for all of it. The Lord promised, I'll be here with you. The Lord says, I am here with you. And then here, the unsaved, the lost, the world says, man, God's with you. It is so abundantly clear. We plainly perceive God's with you, Isaac. The Lord is present. Beloved, this is not an Old Testament only truth. This is your truth. Jesus Christ said, Lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. He put his very spirit, Almighty God's spirit, within us at conversion. The Spirit of God, God Himself indwells you, Christian. Christ is omnipresent, the Father. We have God everywhere we go. You don't go anywhere and get away from Him. There's no fleeing. This is what Psalm 139 is screaming. 
If I go here, he's there. If I go here, he's there. If I go there, he's there. He's everywhere, always with me. Beloved, there's no event, no set of circumstances, no location where the Lord is not present in power and love for you if you are in Jesus Christ. In the, in the, the days that are just fine, lighthearted, having a good time with friends, the living God's present, and in the darkest day where you just cannot believe this would come into your life, the sovereign God is just as powerfully present as he ever has been. He will be with you. He is with you. And I just encourage you guys, look behind you. He has been with you. I love hearing people's testimonies because I love hearing what they share that brought them into that moment. That, that, that's a powerful thing to hear when they say, I found out my whole family was praying for me. Or I found out there was four coworkers that had shared Christ with me. I didn't even hear what they said, but later on I remember that they were sharing Christ. They were sharing the gospel. God has been here. God's been at work here. So I find it magnificent that the living God is always, always, always present with his people. There are precious people in this life that I couldn't imagine this life without. But at some point, there will be a separation and to think that my God is never going anywhere, I will always be with him, always, always with him. I pray, beloved, that, that that's a truth you don't let pass too quickly. You know, we use the word omnipresent, and it kind of comes and it goes and moves kind of quick, and that's a big word, whatnot. No, just, just wrap your arms around that truth today. I want to charge you. I want to encourage you. Wrap your arms around that truth. God is always present. He is with you in everything you do. He knows everything you think. He sees everything. I know it's scary. He sees everything you do. And he has the deepest, most glorious love for you. And is working all things together for good for you if you are his. Talk about armor for bad news. Armor for dark nights, dark days. Second thing, there's a great need for balance. I see this in the text, and I've been thinking on this, these lines anyway, so let me just share this with you. My pastor, when he was getting close to retirement, I forget if it was in a sermon or if it was just he and I visiting, um, but he said, the older I get, the more I recognize the need for balance, where we balance many different things, but here's what's on my, li- on my mind. Nowhere is Isaac lazy in the text. Nowhere does he say, God is sovereign, so therefore I will be lazy. God is sovereign, so therefore I will be inactive. No, he stays at it consistent. He's hardworking He has hard work and action in obedience, 
coupled with a calm, humble, submissive spirit to God's will. Hardworking, submissive to what God gives you. Beloved, those two are, are, are friends. These are not opposed to one another. These are good friends for us to work hard. And you can apply it wherever you may apply it this morning. I, you know, in, in reference to evangelism, I trust God to do the sovereign work of bringing somebody from death to life. But you best get out there and tell the gospel to all the people you can. They are, they are, they are friends. I believe the Spirit of God is the one who matures me in Christ. I believe He's the one that helps me grow. But if I never open up my Bible, if I never pray, if I don't want to be around the body of Christ, how on earth do I think I'm going to mature? You best get to work on your holiness. And then thank God when you mature in your holiness. Hard work and trust in the Lord and dependency on Him to accomplish the task. The Lord is present and active. And I just charge you to find this this balance where we are active, hardworking pursuers with absolute recognition of our dependency on the Lord to do the work. How those two come together in your life, specifically right now, the Spirit of God will lay that for you. I, I don't know. But it's a principle that seems so clear from the Scripture Our God is in everything with us for our good. And as I draw our attention to the communion table this morning, I don't know if you feel this way or not. I have since I was probably a junior high or in high school. Communion Sunday has a particular sense to it, and I don't mean something very supernatural. I just mean there's something very particular about the body of Christ coming together around the communion table. There's nothing special or magical about what's in these containers here. There there is symbols of the broken body, the body of the Lord Jesus, and his spilt-out blood that represents the new covenant in Jesus Christ. Our elders come up as leadership of this local church. We pass it out to you, and then we take it together in unity as a church body in remembrance of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. What makes it particularly sweet, beloved, is that all of us, I pray and hope, are in agreement. We do this in remembrance of the Lord Jesus for the purpose of drawing nearer to the Lord. And I can't help but think of this message this morning and thinking absolutely none of this is even remotely possible apart from a sacrifice. There had to be a sacrifice for you and I to partake in everything I've been speaking to you about this morning in reference to our closeness to the Lord. If all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose, then what does that mean for those that are outside of Christ? If we don't have the spilt blood of the Savior, you are hopeless. You are the most hopeless group of people in the world. That's what he's saying in reference to the resurrection in chapter 15, that we are above all people to be the most pitied. If we have no Christ, we have no hope. If you are here this morning, and you know in your heart right now, crystal clear, I'm not a Christian. I don't believe that. 
Even if you've sat in this building for years, heard the preaching of the word for years, and you have developed such a capability of faking it, I plead with God he'd have mercy. You'd recognize it. God in his grace would let you see yourself rightly. And you'd see your need for a savior, for a rescuer, for a redeemer. And you'd confess Christ today. Lay your life at his feet. It's not about you doing stuff to make God happy. It's about the Son pleasing the Father in our stead. That, my precious church family, is what we come to celebrate. So let me pray. Father, I I ask of you to stir up our affection for Jesus Christ. Lord, that the loves that we may have for things of this world truly would just be a little dimmer, grow a little more distant, become a little more boring. And our Jesus, our Savior, Lord, you, Father, you, God, we would have you, we would hold you as more precious today. We'd see rightly what we have, who, whose we are. That nothing, there's absolutely nothing that is comparable to the sweetness of being in Christ. Let the stuff come and go. But Lord, you, you are our portion forever. So I pray as that man found that treasure in the field, he sold all that he had with joy to buy that field to have that treasure. Father God, I I beg of you, help me to see you as treasure more than ever. For Lord, I know that that's the truth. I just have this stupid, sinful nature I'm battling all the time that's telling me it's not, but I know that's the truth. I pray, Father God, you would produce that in your people by the supernatural work of your Holy Spirit for your glory and our everlasting joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Mitch.